Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. On the podcast today, we are joined by Dr. E. Wen Lee, an associate professor of history at City University of Hong Kong. Uh, she will be telling us about her new book, Networks of Faith and Profit, Monks, Merchants, and Exchanges Between China and Japan, 839 to 1403 CE which was published by Cambridge University Press uh, this year, 2023. Uh, Ewan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Laurie. Yes. Uh, so we have your wonderful book, uh, Networks of Faith and Profit. Could you just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write it? Yeah, sure. Uh, I would be happy to. Um, I am a historian of Maritime East Asia. And uh, I am particularly interested in Buddhist and monastic economy and material culture. Um, I received my training in history first in China uh, at Peking University, uh, where I was trained as a historian of the Song Dynasty. Um, and uh, after that, I went to the United States to pursue a PhD degree. Uh, I actually developed my research interest uh, in Maritime East Asia during my study uh, at Yale University um, under the influence of my teachers there. Um, my advisor, Valerie Hansen, and my other teachers, uh, Peter Padil, Fabian Drixler, and uh, Danny Boltzmann, uh, they were all very supportive and encouraged me to take a transnational approach. And this book, uh, it's based on my PhD dissertation. So I saw uh, how and why I chose this topic for my dissertation and uh, uh, my first book. And I think an important reason is that I have always been interested in ordinary people, um, or non-policy makers, to borrow the term I have been using in this book. And uh, uh, I also believe that to fully understand Chinese history, it's important to see not only how Chinese people viewed and recorded about themselves, but also to see how their contemporaries viewed and recorded about China. Um, so studying the monks and the merchants traveling between China and Japan could suit my multiple research interests perfectly. So yeah, that's it. Great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you researched your book, what that research process looked like, um, what what kinds of sources were you drawing upon? Just a little bit yeah. more about that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, once I decided uh, to study the non-policy makers between China and Japan, uh, I started to browse uh, historical sources uh, related to the, the broader topic. Um, not only textual sources, but also uh, uh, but also archaeological reports, uh, museum catalogs, uh, etc. Uh, after I have found some key sources, I started to see there is the clear connection between monks and the merchants, and realized, uh, wow, I think I have found the dissertation topic, and that was a very exciting moment for me. And the key sources that made me confident about this project uh, included the, the letters written by Chinese monks to their friends in Japan that I used in Chapter 5, and also the discovery of the Xi'an shipwreck, a key part of Chapter 6. And they have demonstrated the, the key connections between Buddhism and the Sino-Japanese trade. And uh, the, the other sources I collected also include uh, monks' travel diaries and 
uh, another important uh, archaeological discovery and the excavation of the, the Chinese culture in Hakata. So after I finished my dissertation and uh, started revising it for the book, and more interesting materials uh, came, came to my attention. Uh, I noticed that there were some poems and letters written by Chinese merchants uh, uh, preserved in Japan. Uh, they have been discussed by Japanese scholars, um, but ha haven't caused attention in the English academic world. So I actually rewrote uh, chapter two when I was revising my dissertation for the book uh, to include in those very interesting materials, uh, which happen to support my argument in a very persuasive way. Mm. Uh, your book covers a very specific set of years, 839 to 1403 CE, which uh, when I read it, your book, uh, inform me that it's a period during which the tributary relationship between mm. China and Japan was suspended, that tribute relationship. Um, so what what have your general findings been um, by looking at this period? What did you discover, discover about mm. Sino-Japanese trade and Buddhist monasteries and monks? Um, you know, why were Buddhist monasteries involved in commercial matters? Mm. Um, and why were these merchants involved with Buddhism. Oh, yeah, right. Um, so for this period, uh, as my book shows, uh, although the, the formal diplomatic relationship between China and Japan was suspended, uh, the exchanges between them uh, did not stop. Uh, uh, Buddhist monasteries and monks uh, actively participated in Sino-Japanese trade. Uh, while the sea merchants also facilitated uh, religious and cultural exchanges. Um, so uh, as for the reasons, um, so although we may have this uh, impression that uh, Buddhist monks usually lived a uh, simple and austere life, um, in reality, uh, material culture was uh, essential for Buddhist monasteries. Uh, they needed to acquire ritual objects to perform ceremonies, um, needed to obtain Buddhist scriptures to know the latest teachings, and also needed money to build uh, or repair the monastic complex. So this all become uh, strong motivations for the monasteries and the monks to take part in the trade. And for the sea merchants, I think the, the reasons uh, were both practical and uh, spiritual. Um, some prestigious monasteries and eminent monks, they actually have very powerful networks um, that could help the merchants to circumvent certain government regulations and uh, gain uh, advantages in the transnational trade. And um, uh, meanwhile, the, the sea merchants, they certainly could use some spiritual guidance and protection uh, since the, the sea travel was very dangerous during the pre-modern period. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent overview of some of the main <laughs> points of your book. Uh, and now I'm hoping we can turn to Chapter 2 when you look at some of the very earliest years of this um, this commercial religious network uh, sure, between the sure. monks and the merchants. Uh, mm -hmm. And this cover this chapter covers 839 to 900. You say as this transition era, uh, as a new pattern of trade took shape in the absence of formal diplomatic relations. Um, so what does this new pattern start to look like more specifically? How did Buddhist monks and merchants work together? How are they cultivating these relationships with one another? Uh, thank you for the question. Um, so this um, new Python, uh, which was still developing at that time, uh, was that monks who used to travel with the, the tribute delegations, uh, they started to travel on merchant boats since the, the tribute delegations were suspended. And the monks, uh, they relied on the merchants uh, for transportation and also uh, requested uh, merchants' help 
for sending messages, gifts, or making purchase uh, of Buddhist sutras and ritual objects. And the merchants, they were quite happy to help the monks too, um, because their role as the monks' messengers or acquaintance also brought them substantial benefits, uh, giving them uh, access to a larger circle of potential clients. So in this chapter, the second chapter of the, this book, uh, I used a uh, uh, monk's diaries and uh, letters and the poems written by sea merchants to show their actual interaction. Um, so we can see that, um, for example, um, the sea merchants uh, frequently sent gifts to the monks, uh, including like some uh, ceramics, tea, uh, sugar, and uh, uh, in one case, uh, even uh, the some sea merchants they even sent their young family member to be the attendant of the monk uh, to invite themselves into the monk's circle. Uh, at the same time, uh, the monks, they also attended the, the merchants' gatherings, uh, drank tea with them, and uh, uh, exchanged poems with the merchants. And uh, that were the ways that they cultivated a relationship with each other. Mm. Um, one thing I was really intrigued about uh, in this chapter is your close reading of the monks' diaries. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can just talk through uh, some of the reasons why uh, there might have been changes to these diaries after they were initially created. So um, you, you seem to indicate that monasteries may have had reasons to alter or add to uh, Japanese monks' accounts of their travels to China. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a very good question. Um, the, the case in my book um, is related to the diary uh, of a quite famous Japanese monk uh, whose name is Anin. Uh, he stayed in China between 838 and uh, 847. Um, so one part of his diary that may have been altered later uh, by his monastery uh, is connected to his acquirement of an important Buddhist ritual object in China. Uh, it's called uh, mandala, this type of uh, Buddhist ritual object. Uh, a dream may have been added to the narrative uh, to further emphasize the importance of obtaining that ritual, ritual object, the, the mandala. And uh, another similar example um, that uh, prompts us to use the sources cri critically uh, is that Annie himself might also have lied uh, in his diary uh, about uh, whether or not he actually obtained another valuable Buddhist object. Uh, so with um, this type of examples, um, I think one lesson uh, we can learn is that uh, we need to bear in mind that the, the diaries uh, the diaries here we read uh, are not simply private documents that the monks just kept for themselves. The diaries could be semi-public materials uh, that the monks and their monasteries uh, used the, the, these uh, documents, the diaries, to demonstrate their own significance uh, to demonstrate their procession of valuable or authentic Buddhist sutras or object, uh, ritual objects, which were uh, often related to China. And those connections, uh, the possession of those valuable objects could give them uh, advantages in competition with other monasteries or uh, with, uh, in the competition with other Buddhist uh, communities. So I think that's the uh, one important reason that this type of uh, documents or sources could be uh, altered later. Yeah, I, I thought that was a, a great point mm -hmm. of analysis. So um, glad to hear you talk about it here some more. Uh, one other thing I was interested about in this chapter was um, a, a moment that occurs during this period of history, which is uh, the persecution of Buddhism uh, under the Chinese Emperor Wuzong. 
so I w- was wondering if you could talk through uh, how that impacted Sino-Japanese trade and the monk merchant network during this period. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a very interesting question. Uh, I actually um, didn't think much about the direct impact of the persecution of Buddhism on Sino-Japanese trade when I was writing the book. Um, so your question actually prompts me to uh, to really consider this um, connection. And the, the persecution of Buddhism uh, had a direct and a severe impact on ending for sure. Uh, the, the, the Japanese monk we were just uh, talking about, because he was in China doing this uh, persecution on Buddhism, and uh, he was in the, the capital uh, at that time. So he couldn't leave China at that time and also had to hide the valuables that he collected to prevent them from being destroyed. So he definitely had a hard time uh, during the persecution. Um, but and also fortunately, uh, this persecution uh, was not long lasting. Uh, it lasted uh, between uh, about uh, 842 and 846. And after the, the uh, Emperor Wuzong died, uh, it was lifted by the following emperor. And uh, Buddhism also revived quite rapidly uh, in China. Um, so this persecution uh, may have made some valuable Buddhist texts scattered out of the palace. And uh, some valuables may have been obtained by foreign visitors. Uh, and himself probably got some. And uh, the, the persecution uh, may uh, also have hindered some Buddhist uh, visitors uh, for a short time. Um, but as we can see, uh, after the persecution was over, the Japanese pilgrims, they were still very much attracted uh, to come to China. So I think uh, from this, we can also see that this uh, monk merchant network it was quite uh, resilient, and especially when we examine it under a, a long time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Yeah. Um, so your next chapter, uh, it examines the period during the end of the Tang Dynasty and the beginning of the Song Dynasty in China, uh, which provided the opportunity for both the Song Dynasty and the Japanese court to consider their relationship, um, whether they might renew tribute missions. Um, Yet it seems at this moment uh, that neither side was strongly interested in pursuing that option. Why do you think this was the case? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, So the, the establishment of this new dynasty, the Song Dynasty, um, certainly gave both sides an opportunity to resume the previous tributary re- relationship. Uh, but as you summarized, uh, they didn't. So uh, as for the reasons uh, for the Japan side, uh, previously, uh, Japan sent uh, tribute delegations uh, to China in exchange uh, for the opportunity to learn about the, the Chinese administration system, to learn about Buddhism, and uh, uh, to trade. Uh, um, but for Japan in the 10th century, at that time, uh, they already established their administration system, and their sense of self-identity also grew stronger. Uh, and uh, uh, thanks to the monk merchant uh, network, uh, the Japanese people, they still maintained access to knowledge and the desirable continental goods, and uh, even if they stopped sending tribute delegations. And so um, it was quite natural that uh, they preferred not to rejoin the tributary network uh, in which they were placed in an inferior position. So yeah, they were in the inferior position in the tributary network. Uh, so, uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, now they had everything they want uh, 
So I think that's the reason for Japan、uh, not to resume the tribute. And for the China side,、um, the the song、uh, was established following a period of separation、uh, in Chinese history. And、um, uh, from its very beginning, the the song was facing threats from its nomadic neighbors in the north and in the west. And so the song court's most、uh, important task、uh, at that time was to ensure its own existence, not to become another short-lived dynasty. So therefore, they didn't press hard、um, for Japan to resume its tribute. Uh, and later, when the situation of the Song became more stable,、uh, the Song Court、uh, used an institution called the the Maritime Trade Superintendency System、uh, to trade with overseas countries. And、uh, through this system, the Song、uh, they also maintained the channels to acquire foreign goods and the information. Uh, moreover,、uh, the Song Court could also increase its revenue by collecting custom duties on imported goods. So the Song Court also appeared to be satisfied with that arrangement. Fantastic.、Um, so during this period, during the Song Dynasty,、uh, you also track some some shifts in the attitudes of Japanese monks toward、uh, China and its emperors. Through the letters and gifts given, as you've been talking about, this is、mm-hmm. no longer a tributary relationship. But、right. um, you know, what does that relationship then look like as they continue to have contact? Yeah. Ah,、uh, thank you. Um. So the uh, you mentioned that there has been this uh this uh shift, and、uh, so I think uh we can uh we can use uh perhaps two examples. Uh, from this chapter to show these、uh, changes, and uh, so uh, one example is、uh, a Japanese monk、uh, whose name is Chonin.、Uh, he came to、uh, Song China、uh, early in its establishment,、uh, about、uh, only twenty years after its establishment,、uh, and the the gifts that、uh, Chonin gave to the em- the the Chinese emperor. Uh, at that time,、um, to to some extent, resembled a tribute,、uh, which included local Japanese products、uh, such as、uh, sulfur and also some chronicles compiled by the Japanese government. And also Chonin,、uh, the Japanese monk, he was very humble and respectful in his letter to the Song Emperor. Uh, so, for example, he in his letter he referred Japan as the home of ants, and China as the nest for phoenixes. So, yeah, you can see、uh, this very humble and respectful tone in his、uh, writing. Um, but about eighty、uh, years later, uh, when another Japanese monk, uh, whose name is Jojin, uh, came to the audience with another Song Emperor. Uh, the gifts that he presented、uh, was a pure sight of religious objects,、uh, including Buddhist scriptures,、uh, prayer beads,、uh, and an incense burner. And、um, when Chinese officials、uh, said to Georgian that、um, his gifts were not appropriate for the emperor,、uh, since they were not super valuable and、uh, Uh, relatively a you know small quantity, and Georgian's response was that he was just a monk, and、uh, there was nothing wrong for a monk to present religious objects to the emperor. And during his audience with the the emperor, Georgian also、uh, openly admitted that、uh, Japan would not send uh, tributes uh, anytime soon. So here we can see this、uh, change. Uh, in a very clear way, uh, Chonin's uh attitude uh still shows some remnants from the previous tribute era, uh perhaps because he didn't know whether the tribute relationship would resume as the Song Dynasty just、uh, established, and there was also no 
uh, other types of previous models uh, of interacting with an emperor, except for the tribute model. Um, but in Georgian's days, uh, like 80 years later, it became clear that the the tribute relationship would not resume in the foreseeable future. Uh, so Georgian, he could confidently claim that uh, his visit and the meeting uh, were purely religious and contained no diplomatic implications. Thank mm. you. So earlier you um, mm. mentioned that uh, something else that changes during the Song Dynasty is mm -hmm. uh, China's management of maritime trade with the new institution, uh, the Maritime Trade Superintendency. So I was wondering if what? you could talk a little bit about uh, that institution's impact on trade. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so the Maritime Trade Superintendency system, uh, it actually regularized the Sino-Japanese trade and also, in my opinion, uh, facilitated the trade. Um, conducting private trade uh, became easier uh, than the previous tribute era. So theoretically, uh, as long as the private merchants followed all the instructions, uh, paying taxes, applying for permission to go overseas, etc., uh, they should be able to conduct the trade smoothly. Um, but of course, in reality, there were still other risks. So sea travel had always been a risk and uh, there were corrupted officials and also uh, customers who didn't pay for the goods. And so, yeah, I discussed a case in detail in a later chapter. So I think we will get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's let's continue on to your next chapter, chapter right. four. Uh, and this is where you trace yet another major shift in the exchange network as Chinese merchants began to establish permanent residence in Hakata, Japan. You mentioned this um, earlier in the interview. Uh, and this is when the Japanese uh, Da Zaifu headquarters loosened its control on foreign merchants, allowing for them to establish residence. Um, because as I'm sure you'll talk about, that wasn't allowed before, really. Right. Um, so what did this new... Uh, Chinese residents, this Chinese quarter in Hakata look like, and what kind of impact did it have on the Sino-Japanese network? What kinds of new relationships do we see? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the this um, Chinese culture, um, it was a residential area near the port of Hakata. Uh, it took shape in the very early uh, tw 12th century. Uh, the same time when the Japanese uh, Dazaifu headquarters loosened its control on foreign merchants. Uh, previously, uh, the foreign merchants, they could not enter Japan uh, as uh, as frequently as they wanted. Sometimes there has to be like a waiting period between uh, two subsequent uh, visits. And so now they, uh, after the Dazaifu loosened its control, the Chinese culture started to take shape. And this Chinese culture uh, was home to hundreds of households. Uh, so it's a quite sizable uh, diaspora. Um, most of the, the residents uh, in the Chinese culture, uh, they were Chinese merchants. And uh, um, the, the textual evidence of the Chinese culture um, is actually quite limited. Um, so we try to recover what the Chinese culture uh, looked like, uh, mainly through archaeological evidence. And uh, some impact of this uh, Chinese culture um, is that the, the establishment uh, of this Chinese culture, it actually allowed the Chinese merchants to cultivate long-term relationships in Japan, uh, which was not possible previously. And uh, um, but uh, previously, also the Dazaifu had cultures regulated foreign merchants, 
Um, they also provided essential protection for them. So, for example, uh, some records of lawsuits showed that uh, merchants faced the danger of being robbed, and also the there uh, there are uh, people who got their goods but did not pay the non-paying debtors. And uh, so the Chinese merchants, uh, after the Dazaifu stepped down, uh, they, uh, although the Chinese merchants gained more freedom uh, in staying in Japan, they still need to find themselves new protectors or patrons. Um, so therefore, we see that the, the merchants, they sought affiliations from local monasteries in Japan. Uh, trying to find their new protection or new uh, patrons. Um, the merchants, they were very keen on cultivating connections with powerful monasteries in Japan. Uh, the, those monasteries uh, may also help them to build connections with uh, cultures in the capital. And uh, the Chinese merchants, they were also seeking affiliations uh, the, the Chinese uh, merchants seeking affiliations with the monasteries uh, apparently uh, further developed and fortified this religious commercial network between China and Japan. So, yeah. uh, Another major development that you highlight here in Chapter 4 is that the Chinese merchants in Japan played a really significant role in promoting Zen Buddhism. Uh, there. So uh, I was wondering if you talk, could talk a little bit about how that mm. starts to happen. Yeah, right. Um, so Zen Buddhism at that time uh, was still underdeveloped in Japan. And the, the 12th century was also an important period for Zen Buddhism to claim a position uh, in the religious sphere in Japan. Um, so in the Buddhist records that related to Zen Buddhism coming to Japan uh, at that time, uh, we can see that uh, those accounts gave Chinese merchants a prominent position, uh, such as being the messengers telling Japanese monks that Zen Buddhism was uh, prosperous in China, uh, encourage. Uh, so to encourage Japanese monks to go to China and to learn the new teaching. Um, so, and the, the Chinese merchants, they also served as the, the translators, the uh, transportation providers, and the uh, direct promoters of Zen Buddhism in Japan. Uh, some wealthy Chinese merchants, they even helped to build Zen monasteries in Japan. So all of this, um, again, show this further development of this uh, monk and merchant collaboration. So we can see their collaboration uh, have taken multiple steps further. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I want to turn now to Chapter 5. Um, we move forward a bit in time, 1200 to 1270. And Chapter 5 examines something called the Voyage of the Wooden Planks, uh, in which the Jotenji Monastery in Hakata, Japan, assisted in the reconstruction of the Jingshan Monastery in China uh, by sending wooden planks. Uh, so mm -hmm. this case, as you say in your book, is really well documented in part because of a series of accidents that uh, befell this mission, this voyage. Uh, could you explain what happened exactly and what lessons it, it might teach us about the Religio commercial network? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really like this uh, question. question. Um, I think that I am very lucky uh, to be able to find a case that has enough materials to show the actual working dynamic of this Religio commercial network. Um, so basically about this case, um, this case is, uh, is about a transaction of uh, wooden planks or uh, lumber that occurred between a prestigious Chinese monastery, Jingshan, 
uh, located in Hangzhou, the, the capital of the Southern Song Dynasty, and uh, uh, newly established the Japanese monastery, Zhou uh, Tianji, in Hakata. So the, this Chinese monastery, Jingshan, uh, was damaged by a fire and needed lumber for the reconstruction. And the, the abbot, the founding abbot actually, uh, of the Japanese monastery, Zhou Tianji, uh, once studied uh, at Jingshan Monastery. Um, so he had a good and a strong connection there. And, uh, uh, and also, meanwhile, the, a major patron of Zhou Tianji uh, was a Chinese merchant. So yeah, you can really see the flow from previous chapter to this one. And, uh, and also the, the Zhou Tianji itself actually uh, was located in the Chinese culture uh, we were just uh, talking about. And so under the help of the, this uh, wealthy Chinese merchant, uh, Zhou Tianji sent 1,000 wooden planks to uh, Hangzhou uh, in a fleet of uh, three ships. Um, but one ship accidentally landed on a port that could not process overseas goods. And so yeah, this is also related to the uh, maritime trade uh, superintendency system we were talking about. So under that system, uh, only several uh, ports in China uh, that can process overseas goods, uh, since the overseas goods needs to be taxed uh, after they arrived in China. So there has been some appointed licensed ports to process the overseas goods. Um, but for this ship that accidentally landed on a wrong port, uh, that could that doesn't have the license to do that. And uh, so um, that ship uh, was detained for more than a year. And uh, uh, the, the merchants appointed by the Zhou Monastery, uh, they had to seek help from the uh, the Jingshan Monastery, since they, they didn't have other contacts or other resources in China. And uh, the, the Jingshan Monastery uh, actually helped them to solve the problem. The fiscal advisor of the Jingshan Monastery, uh, they had to bribe Chinese officials uh, to help the, the merchants to get their ship back. Uh, but that's uh, worked out. So, yeah, as you just mentioned, this case uh, was well documented uh, due to uh, a series of accidents. So, uh, first, it was an accidental fire that led to the whole case. Uh, well, the ship also landed at the wrong port by accident. Uh, we can know about this transaction in detail today. Also, uh, because that uh, a set of letters from the monks in Hangzhou sent to Japan uh, have been preserved. Uh, but uh, those letters were preserved because they were considered as uh, valuable calligraphy works uh, by famous Chinese monks. And the works like that can be used to uh, used as decorations for China, uh, for Japanese tea rooms. So these sources, they were also uh, preserved somewhat by accident. Um, but it is just because of all the accidents, uh, we can see a real uh, maritime world uh, where ships didn't always land at their targeted ports and uh, corrupted officials may cause problems or become a help. And uh, uh, we can also see that in the real world, um, people's connections really matter. And uh, the, the religious commercial network, uh, therefore, uh, was crucial for both the, the merchants and the monks. Yeah, it's, it's just a really fascinating case. It, it... It it still stands out to me now, thinking back on your book, reading that some of these letters were only preserved, as you said, because yeah. they were considered nice pieces of calligraphy, right, right? and decorated. Right. Amazing. Um, let's turn to chapter six now. Uh, and you're moving forward in time here uh, to 
the the Mongol Empire. Uh, and during this period, the Mongols had tried to invade Japan twice. Uh, but, uh, you know, surprisingly, at least to me, is that Sino-Japanese trade persisted pretty, pretty strongly through this period. Mm. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, talk about this and characterize this period for us in terms of what's happening uh, with your your narrative of Sino-Japanese trade and the the network you're looking at. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so I would say that uh, during this period, this uh, the, the network uh, actually further developed on the basis of the previous centuries. So during this time period, uh, we can see that some Buddhist monasteries in Japan uh, directly participated in the Sino-Japanese trade. And uh, there was a new type of trade expedition, expedition uh, which was that the, the monasteries, they collaborated with sea merchants and dispatched the ships to China for trade. Under the name uh, of raising money to finance uh, monastery construction, and uh, the uh, some players we already uh, known from the the previous case in the previous chapter, uh, they still played an important role in this period. So we can certainly see a continuation here, and uh, um, this uh, direct participation of the monasteries in the trade uh, compared with the previous era. Uh, they the, the monasteries were further involved in the overseas trade, and uh, the the religious network and the trade network also were further integrated. Um, and also we can even uh, see like from other perspective, such as um, geographically speaking, uh, this religious commercial network also expanded. Uh, from uh, Kyushu and the West Japan uh, to the east, uh, to the area of uh, Kamakura uh, near today's uh, Tokyo. So this uh, expansion is uh, both commercial and uh, religious. So yeah, I think it's very interesting to see this uh, net, the, the religious and the trade network, they have been further integrated and expanded uh, geographically. Mm. Um, during this period, there also seemed to be some new potential barriers to Sino-Japanese trade that you explore, uh, including riots and piracy <laughs> along the China coast. Um, so what, what kind of impact did those developments have? Uh, yes. Um, so the, uh, the, the riots and the piracy, they also increased the, the risk of conducting trade. Uh, between China and Japan uh, at that time. So the, the merchants, they faced a, a greater danger of losing money while conducting the trade. And that also prompted their collaboration uh, with the, the monasteries. So yeah, I think this uh, question uh, really follows up with, uh, follows up what I just uh, explained about the, the new developments. And uh, so um, because of the, the monasteries, as the previous case uh, shows, had better connections and uh, might be able to pull strings when accidents occurred. So under uh, when there were more risks, including the riots, the piracy, and the, they prompt the further collaboration between the uh, the monks and the merchants and the monasteries. And that's also why we saw this uh, new pattern that the, the monasteries, they directly participated in the trade. So I think these two questions, they're actually interconnected. Mm. Yeah, great. Mm. Um, so we have one final chapter in your book, chapter mm -hmm. seven, uh, and it explores you know, naturally, the resumption of the tribute relationship between China and Japan. You start with when it first, mm -hmm. you know, falls apart, and then right. now it's coming back together. So what, what finally leads to the resumption of that tribute relationship? Yeah, um, the, uh, a direct reason 
uh, a direct reason for the resumption of the tribute relationship uh, was the, the political change in China. Uh, a new dynasty, uh, the Ming Dynasty, was established in China, and the founding emperor of the Ming Dynasty uh, was determined to have the tributary relationship resumed, so no private trade was allowed. Um, so um, if Japan wanted to maintain access to Chinese goods and to keep a trade relationship uh, with China, they did not have another choice uh, but to rejoin the China-centered tribute system. And uh, also at that time, the, the Japanese side was willing to cooperate, uh, in my opinion, uh, also for multiple reasons. And so first, the, the political situation in Japan was not very stable at that time. And uh, establishing an official diplomatic relationship with the Ming uh, also, uh, to some extent, uh, enhanced the authority of the Japanese ruler. And uh, secondly, the continental goods and the profit generated from the tribute trade with China was still very attractive to Japan, uh, becoming another motivation uh, for Japan to rejoin the tribute system. Hmm. So I know this isn't the, the focus of your book, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happens to the religious commercial network following the resumption of the tribute relationship. So what kinds of legacies do we see from the period from 839 to 1403? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Um, so the, this uh, resumption uh, of the, the tribute missions, they actually put an end to the previous trade pattern and also started a new era. And the uh, the religious commercial network, uh, it was open to various participants, the, the monks, the, the merchants, um, uh, and by nature, that was a private um, network. Uh, the tribute system uh, was a type of uh, official diplomatic relationship. Um, but um, after the six centuries, this new tribute uh, relationship between China and Japan uh, actually inherited many features from the previous uh, religious commercial um, network. So, for example, we can see after the tribute relationship resumed, uh, monks were appointed as the embassies of uh, tribute delegations and uh, uh, monasteries, they were still participating in the tribute trade. And sometimes they even had their own ships uh, in the tribute delegations. So the, the players somehow uh, didn't change that much, although the, the nature of the relationship changed. And uh, uh, the Chinese court uh, also recognized and uh, accommodated the delegation's desire for commercial profits. This was also something new because uh, in the Tang Dynasty, uh, before the, the uh, religious commercial network, the, the it was very difficult for the tribute delegation members to conduct a trade in China. So their activities uh, were uh, strictly uh, 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 was strictly uh, strained. Um, but uh, during the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese court, they were willing to accommodate their desire to trade. And so we can see the, uh, the key features of this uh, religious commercial network was still very much visible in this uh, new tribute trade era. Very nice. Um, before we start to wrap things up a little bit, uh, I just wanted to ask if you had anything else that you wanted to add about your book uh, before we move on. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, one thing that I really enjoyed and found interesting while writing the book uh, is to find uh, the hidden messages in Buddhist sources. 
Uh, we have discussed uh, that uh, we need to analyze some text critically, and uh, this is also an uh, extension uh, of it. So sometimes the Buddhist monks, they try to disguise the economic activities that they were involved in and uh, uh, may record a business transaction as a gift change. Um, uh, I have examined several cases like that uh, in my book and found it uh, really interesting to see how the monks described their uh, economic activities. So yeah, also we know that the uh, monks and the monasteries, uh, they were actually quite active uh, in uh, making profits and uh, uh, participating in uh, all types of uh, economic activities. But uh, theoretically, uh, in some classical Buddhist scriptures, uh, it was not encouraged. And so sometimes in their writings, they try to disguise uh, what they actually did. And so, yeah, that's... Uh, so I think this may inspire us to re-examine uh, some Buddhist records and perhaps to gain a deeper understanding uh, of the relationship between Buddhism and the commerce. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really glad that you're ending on that note because it was those moments of you carefully reading Buddhist sources that I really, really enjoyed in the book. Um, well, Ewan, uh, you know, thank you for your time today. Uh, I know you took, you know, a, a good chunk of your day out uh, to tell us about your book. Um, but before we end, could you tell us if you are working on anything new? Yeah, sure. And uh, now I am working on uh, another group of ordinary people, or non-policy makers. Uh, I am studying uh, artisans or craftsmen, uh, especially those working for Buddhist monasteries. And so, yeah, that is uh, still very much uh, center of my research interest. And uh, the, the sources about them are like a uh, like that about the merchants are uh, very limited and uh, scattered. So I'm also examining both textual and visual evidence. And there were some artisans that traveled between China and Japan. So I'm tracing them. So yeah, I hope um, this, uh, this project is still at a very preliminary stage, but uh, I hope that uh, one day that can become my next book. And I also look forward to discussing that with you here in the future. Thank you so much, Laurie. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I look forward to that, that new project when it comes down the pipeline. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again, Ewan, for joining uh, me to talk about your book. And thank you to everyone who has tuned into the episode. You've been listening to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.